This podcast was recorded before the coronavirus and before the 2021 Formula One regulations were delayed. So please excuse some mentions of the rule changes next year. Throughout the history of motorsport, the drivers have been on the front line of racing, but often their performance depends entirely on a group of engineers. In a special podcast series, we are going to speak to the likes of Adrian Newey, Patrick Head and Gordon Murray about what it takes to engineer the greatest drivers in the history of our sport. Not only will we look at some of the groundbreaking technology they brought to Formula One, but we will delve into the minds of the best drivers the sport has seen. We hope you enjoy the series, Engineering Formula One's Drivers. Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast. We've got a very special recording lined up today because we are joined by Frank Durney and Motorsports Editor Joe Dunn. This is part of our new series called Engineering Formula One's Drivers. And Frank, we've got loads of readers' questions here. We've got a lot to talk about. So we're going to try and cram it all into an hour. Um, And there is a little bit of pressure today uh, because in one of the questions, David said, your last appearance was by far the best in the history of the podcast. So, absolutely no pressure today. <laughs> um, but welcome to the motorsport offices um, here, in, here in North London. And I wanted to start with something that you actually you said last time, because I thought it was quite apt for, for the series. You said great drivers don't understand how the car works. Yeah. They don't need to, it's probably... The thing is, most of the great drivers started driving when they were 14 or 15. You know, they did not go to school and study physics. They did not go to university and study physics and mathematics. The likelihood of them actually understanding exactly how the car works, therefore, is really low. But it doesn't really matter, because as long as you have a good relationship between the engineer and the driver, and the driver has a good way of understanding what you're on about, and you can interpret what he's saying in terms of the physics, or what you've seen in the wind tunnel, or what have you, and do what's needed to resolve what he's complaining about, then that's fine. Do you, uh, drivers need to be intelligent, though. The great drivers are very intelligent. Yes, there's no doubt. And obviously, if that's all they do, you know, whilst they might not know much about physics, after a few years of experience with racing cars, they do understand some of it. But often, they'll put, you know, karting experience in a go-kart, for example, you can adjust the car pretty well only with weight distribution. Now, therefore, the driver might get in his head that the weight distribution does this. Now, it does more than that on a car, which has got springs and anti-roll bars and wings. And I've worked with drivers who didn't want to do with the weight distribution what I knew would work well because of their karting experience. And, you know, then you're up, you know, you're up against it a bit because you've actually got a situation where the driver is sure he knows, but he doesn't. Well, I was just going to, I don't want to sort of throw um, past comments back at you, but um, <laughs> speaking of, of, of what but, makes but you're going good, to. I'm yeah. going to, only because I, I thought it was really interesting once you mentioned that the best drivers are also introverts, and, and it, it sort of, um, it struck a chord me, really, because I, I thought, I wondered, first of all, why, and, and, and maybe if there are any sort of examples of introverted drivers, and who the most introverted driver um, that you've, you've, you've driven with was. Well, worked with us. I think they're intro- I think the reason why introverted, the most successful drivers are introverted, is because they they can concentrate better and they make fewer mistakes. Extroverts tend to be a bit gung ho, and therefore they crash more often, and they probably aren't quite as good at putting together a complete Grand Prix 
without being distracted. Um, and I would say, if you you know, quite a few, almost all the great drivers, multiple world champions, are, are obviously introvert, and they have found some way of dealing with being in the public eye themselves, because they all hate it, in my experience, and yet they will have found some way of dealing with it, because they have to, because they're paid to. So, you know, someone like Michael Schumacher gave the impression of being a little bit arrogant, but he wasn't arrogant at all. He was just nervous of people he didn't know, and that sort of thing. He, w he was a warm and friendly guy when you got to know him. Um, Nelson Piquet, he's very introvert, and yet he comes up with some fairly wicked bits of sense of humour to make people laugh and all that sort of stuff, often maybe a little bit close to the bone, but that's Nelson. Um, Alain Prost, there's a guy there who was, you know, sitting there practically biting the end of his fingers off with every interview. Um, I never work with Senna, but I'd be surprised if he's not introvert as well, simply because he won a lot of races. And my experience is all the great drivers are introverts. It's interesting because Adrian Newey commented that he's found throughout his career that Italian drivers or South American drivers tended, you know, they, they, were, they weren't obviously, in, they're less introverted. Um, and he, he said, obviously, Valentino Rossi is, a, is an example of someone who's been a huge success. But do you think that's the introvert can is geographically placed sometimes with drivers oh i'm not an expert on that i don't think <clears throat> I, i'm nelson's pretty latin in his approach yet he, he certainly is an introverted person there's no doubt um so whether you can no i i think it's like all things you know there are nice people and unpleasant people of every nationality of every race and of every part of the world so i s presume that there are introverted and extroverted people in every part of the world? Uh, uh, just to, to follow on, I mean, uh, you've worked with so many kind of great drivers. Are there any other sort of characteristics or character traits that, that you think are common to some of the, the best? Mm, well, only that they're fast, to be honest, because that's the one thing, you know, having worked with some great drivers is the only two things that I found that are really common in the ones who win lots are that they're clever and introvert. In other ways, they're completely different. You know, you, you'll have some drivers who want to sit with you for hours and hours and hours trying to understand what's going on, and another driver, particularly in the earlier days before he had any data to pour over, who would just basically say, I understeers at the hairpin, I'm off for a steak, you're in the shit. <laughs> You know, and those are, those are both drivers who've won world championships. And I quote, you know. Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I wanted to ask about that because obviously, you know, you started your Formula One career really in the late 70s, but you were still in Formula One with Toyota 2007. Um, the change in between those two dates, especially with the data and how as an engineer you worked, was the one you preferred? Did you, as an engineer, did you like having all the data, or actually um, was it more satisfying being able to use, you know, get to sort the car without it? Well, it was it was certainly satisfying. I mean, I, to put it in perspective, I think there were eighteen people at Hesketh Racing when I was there. There were twenty three at Williams when I joined, and, and I think there are something like seven hundred at Williams now, and there were probably a thousand at Toyota. So it has changed massively. Um, 
And I was one of the pioneers of using computers in and getting data. So I can't really say I didn't like it. <laughs> um, but I do think that people have got too blasé about it. For example, I'm absolutely 100% sure that the two most important things affecting the grip of the car are keeping the tyre temperature at the right temperature over the longest period of its grip limited in the corner. And the other is the shape of the aero map, i.e. how much downforce it produces at different ride heights and pitches. Neither of those, certainly when I was doing it, neither of those had a sensor. <laughs> so you could get a bit of ride height data, but whether that told you what you really need to know. But the 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 tyre temperature, and we all know, anyone who's ever talked to us, oh, I couldn't warm my tyres up, or, you know, it has always been the most important parameter and has never been certainly in my career there was never a tire temperature sensor that was told you what you needed to know there are now i don't know how effective they are because i haven't used them but if you therefore have got suspension movement you know whether you've got an oil leak you know that the water's getting too hot there are lots of things you do know from the telemetry but whether you've knocked on the head the most important parameter to get the most grip no, you need to go out and have a look at the tyres and lie underneath the car and have a look at what the skid block looks like. And, that, and I found, latterly, that a lot of the drivers couldn't believe that I wasn't sitting in front of a laptop for four hours rather than going down and chatting to the tyre man and, you know, looking at the skid block and seeing if anything... You know what I mean? I, I was still doing that right at the end. And I think one of the problems is that because the younger guys have never done it any other way, so they have got no real way no, of feeling for... And, of course, you can't get broad experience anymore. Long gone the days when, as a young engineer, you might go and work for Lola or Reynard and be chucked in as a support engineer and find that your front-wing end plate's got a problem and have to come back and redraw it. None of that's possible anymore. Nobody does that because they're all one-make formula. You're not allowed to change it. So the guys who are, the junior guys who are learning the tools of the trade can only be race engineers, and therefore they don't really get the concept side, not in any depth, and they don't learn the absolute nuts and bolts of what makes a racing car quick. There is no way of doing it anymore. I, th I actually think the one-make formula is the invention of the devil and the worst thing that's happened in formula, in motor racing, ever. We, we, we must talk about the next year's regulations in, in a bit. I wanted to ask, because obviously there's, there's drivers that I think stood out for you in your career, from Reutemann to, to PK and Juan Pablo Montoya. I did just want to start by asking you about James Hunt. Because you'd obviously just arrived in Formula One. I'm, I have a suspicion he was probably the one who said it's understeering the hairpin, I'm off to have a steak. It, it, it actually wasn't, but no, it, right. it could have been. <laughs> what was but, he like to work with? Uh, he was great. I, I never really, I was never front line with him. I was doing suspension geometry work for Harvey Postlethwaite and analysing some of his aero data. And so I would go to events only in the UK and like, so I'd be overhearing things about oh you know it's got a bit of understeering listening to what they were going to do about it um so to say that i worked with him apart from he knew who i was and we had a good chat about this and that and it was a bit of fun and all that and subsequently it was quite good fun because of course he was at the races as a commentator um the only story i remember about james was at silverstone 
in it would have been 75 I suppose he came into the pit in qualifying saying the car was just a little bit loose in um, crikey I'm forgetting the name of all the corners now and in Woodcut and that was when it was just an open pretty well flat out bend with a sleeper bank on the outside and um, could he have a softer rear bar and it was on full soft and Harvey pointed out that it was on full soft and one of the older mechanics said let me sort it out for you James and he made a lot of noise around the back of the car and he took the anti-roll bar off he said I'll just take it into the truck and turn it down well it was a massive great big anti-roll bar there wasn't a lathe that he could have fitted in and he came back fitted it James was a bit more wound up because there wasn't much of the session left and he didn't lie to him he just said I think you'll find the car's fine now and he went out and went half a second quicker because <laughs> it just goes to show that driver confidence is another thing you haven't got any data you know it's not I, I've seen it before uh, in the last race the last Brazil race with Montoya um, this the simulation had given an optimized setting for the rear wing and we were damaging we were getting rear tire degradation on the hairpin coming up onto the main straight and I said well why don't we just stick another hole of wing on oh we can't do that the simulation says it'll be slower and I looked at the simulation it was like 0.02 slower <laughs> and I said well if it doesn't damage the tires you might find that doesn't work. oh well yeah but we're only we're not really too competitive on the straight we don't want to go slower on the straight and I said well let's try it now generally speaking that was absolutely not done the young engineers definitely wouldn't have done that but because I'd worked with Juan Pablo before he was all for it and he went out and again I think he was four tenths half a second quicker he stuck it on pole and won the race now if we'd have used the old way sorry the data analysis and the simulation we would never have even tried the setting that won the race so we've got I must ask some of these readers questions and we've got a couple here one from Chris and one from Adrian King and um, really sort of about the same thing um, can Frank tell us about Nelson's 1987 season and how much did the San Marino accident affect him? At what point did you agree to implement the measured approach to a season that resulted in championship victory? Um, so, yeah, so obviously the, I think Nelson did change quite a lot after that. Well, he, he, wasn't he right. banged his head badly. I mean, they should really have changed it before Senna died, shouldn't they? Because he wasn't the first person to have nearly died there. Um, and he couldn't see as well although he never told us. He didn't actually tell me about quite a few of the things that went wrong until after he retired because it was, he felt that it wasn't right. But um, he certainly was never as quick again. I mean, prior to that, in, on an equal day in an equal car, Nigel was never as quick as him, actually. Might have been braver. But after that, they were very closely matched. I don't know that a more measured approach was... I don't think we changed the approach, to be honest. The approach always was, we don't care which car wins as long as the other one's second. And um, that may not have pleased the drivers, but that was always the Williams approach. There's a, and Robert was sort of asking the... Sorry, Chris was asking a similar question um, about that 87 season. Uh, but he goes on to say, um, many folk, myself included, feel he was fortunate to win the 87 um, title and he was generally outdriven by Mansell in 86 and 87, which is sort of against, I suppose, what you're saying. I wouldn't agree with that, no. Yeah. Right, well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's answered your question. Um, there's quite a uh, nice one um, here uh, from Konstantin Pavlenko. Um, During your time at Ligier, two great champions were invited to, uh, for a short test to evaluate the car. Prost in 92 and Schumacher in 94. Which of them impressed you more and provided better feedback on the car? 
and did this information help in further development of the chassis? Well, the 92 thing I was there for, and I, um, I did, I think the thing we gained mainly was how incredibly fast Prost was. We really hadn't realised, and this sounds terribly arrogant, doesn't it? We hadn't actually realised that the car was quite good. <laughs> um, and, you know, because Prost was, frankly, if we'd have had Prost in the car for the season, which didn't happen because Guy wouldn't, wasn't prepared to give him the team, as far as I can understand, um, we wouldn't have beaten Williams, but then we had one engine in spec lower than them but we would have been up there with them you know if you look at the difference in lap time between Prost so he was very interesting to work with because he asked me some questions that meant he'd really felt the car because he was talking about things that I knew made an effect which nobody else had ever talked about which was interesting with it was different with Michael because I'd actually arranged that test and he didn't want to talk to me about it because he didn't want to help Ligier to beat him. <laughs> so he didn't say anything about the handling of the car to me. He may have done to Ross and Rory and everybody, but he wouldn't talk to me about it. But he was obviously... Kind of him, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. But he was obviously quick. He was quick and, I mean, he's, he's a very competitive guy. He's not going to help somebody else but he didn't he certainly didn't help me and he was determined not to <laughs> right. um there's uh, it's another one on we've been talking about alan prosper one from david here um uh, it's in your last appearance on the podcast you mentioned alan prosper was intrigued as to why even in a first gear hairpin at monaco aerodynamics was the most important was more important than anything mechanical can you please explain uh, to us why this is true well, it, it, that probably is an exaggeration. Mechanically, the thing that makes the difference is the tyre temperature. So that's all. There's nothing you're going to do with springs and dampers and all the other stuff that people talk about for the mechanical aspect of the car that will give you any more grip. Um, mechanical things lose grip, <laughs> not gain it. You know, what you're trying to do with the suspension geometry and the dampers and the springs is to minimise the loss, not create a gain. But with downforce, an extra bit of downforce gives an extra bit of vertical force. So with the same amount of friction coefficient, which is tyre temperature dependent, you will have more grip. If that extra little bit of downforce allows the tyre to not overheat, it'll give you even more grip than you realise. And so whilst the incremental increase in downforce is a tiny number of kilos at that speed, the actual extra grip it gives you, both due to the fact that it's the only thing that's giving you more grip, plus it may help the tyres, uh, means that it does. And yet, you know, Prost, I think, was the first driver who'd, who'd noticed that himself and wanted to know from me why it was. It's amazing that there's, you know, driving a Formula 1 car flat out and you've still got time to sort of wonder about those things. That's probably why I never was a Formula 1 driver. <laughs> and um, why he win, won so many <laughs> Yes, places, exactly. Yeah. Um, I didn't call him the professor for nothing, believe you, me. Do you think there's... Uh, lots of people always talk about the great drivers are the, are the ones who can drive at the limit using less of their brain, as it were. Do you think there's something to be said for that? Because there was, you know, there's, there's rumours of, you know, Michael Schumacher on a qualifying lap coming over the radio talking completely normally and we alluded to it there with Prost, I take yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't, uh, certainly the older drivers who weren't used to using the radio were somewhat surprised that they could use it. And that was, that was so the, but you know, radio discipline got better. And it's certainly true that with some drivers, you would say they were absolutely using 100% of their capacity to not crash. Whereas with other drivers, they weren't. And, you know, they were thinking ahead. You know, you hear stories about 
drivers back in the day who smelt grass and thought, oh, someone's gone off. You know, wasn't that Jim Clark's story? I forget. He's my hero. But it's, it, it's certainly the case that being clever is a very big part of it. And the cleverer you are, I suppose, the more of your intellect you've got left over the top of the driving. Yeah, because you do hear sort of current drivers sometimes referring to something they saw on the big screen during the race. And I always, I'm flabbergasted by that because, you know, surely you should be looking at where you're going. But well, you should, <laughs> but I think you, a, a driver's going to be taking data from everywhere he can. And if there are big screens that he can see in various places, I'd, be, I'd certainly be wanting to get that information. I know it's impossible to compare drivers from different eras, but do you think, you know, it is possible because a driver in the 30s are using, is using everything at his or her disposal to be the fastest, and really it's the same now, it's just a different set of tools they've got. Yeah, I absolutely think so. I, I think that whoever was the best driver then would be the best driver today, you know, with the proviso that there may be somebody, I don't know, somewhere in the world who will never have an opportunity to even get a driving licence who's got what it takes but will never drive. But yes, the best... The, the requirements have changed in as much as the cars have got far more grip now than they used to have. Um, and you probably don't require as much bravery because, because, A, because of that, and B, because of all the safety precautions. <laughs> but I still think that, you know, the best drivers are the best drivers, and that's that. Just to pick up on the on the bravery side of things, could you tell us a bit about your impressions of, 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 of Mansell and whether he is given the credit that maybe he deserved and what your opinion of was uh, working with him? Well, Nigel is a massively talented driver. He's really fast, but he, he, uh, he's not one of the people who you call very intelligent. So he probably had the best car five times and was world champion once. What, what I'm, sure was he like? I'm sure you told him that uh, yourself. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've told him that. He probably, he probably hit me if I said that. But it's, it's, um, you know, if you take '86, it's a good example. We we all remember the tire exploding, and Nigel not winning. We then probably don't remember that we, therefore, as a team, chose as a safety precaution to pull Nelson in and change his tyres, which we weren't on plan. As a result of, he, he wasn't world champion either. Had we left him out and he hadn't had a tyre burst, which had been the plan, uh, he would have been world champion. But as it was, Prost won by one point. Now, if you look at all the races, rather than just the last one, if, or even more extreme, you reverse the season such that Australia would have been the first race, as it is now, and Brazil the last, um, Nobody would remember Nigel had had a blowout by mid-season, probably, because it wasn't allied to the number of points he'd already scored. And if he'd gone off on the first lap of the last race of the making a stupid manoeuvre, which is what he did in Brazil, everyone would have said, bah, silly bugger, he doesn't deserve to be world champion. So, you know, one's... I know the this the psychological view of what actually happens in the season is massively coloured by the sequence of the races and how it's publicised. Because um, you know we we'll never forget. I'll never forget Nigel not crashing with that rear tyre hanging off. It was just remarkable, and yet um, it was just one of multiple races, not all of which 
failed because of a car failure. Some of them were his own fault. And Nelson's the same, you know. Prost deserved that championship because he didn't have a particularly reliable car, but every time it finished, nobody could have got more points out of it. Whereas both our drivers were racing against each other, and like Nelson knocked all four wheels off it in Detroit, trying to go faster than he needed, actually. And, you know, both of them threw away races during the year, but it's not obvious to us, I suppose, as fans, simply because of the sequence in which they happened. You had quite a complicated relationship with, with, with Nigel, though. I mean, in terms of he... Am I right in saying that he thought always thought that you favoured Nelson over over him or that Nelson were getting an advantage? I just wonder what your... Yeah, I, 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 the thing is, I, I went, did loads of tests with Nigel, got on famously with him and everything. In the first year he was with us, when Keki was his teammate, he used to stay at our house when we were testing at Silverstone. He'd be rolling around on the carpet with my kids and I had a really good relationship with him. It was great. But at some stage, he seemed to have decided I was favouring Nelson. Now, I ran Keki at the races, not Nigel, and I ran Nelson at the races, not Nigel. Why, I'm not sure exactly what it was at some stage, although I did probably, maybe I had some bad words with him over the active suspension, because he absolutely refused to drive an active suspension car. He had had some nasty accidents testing the Lotus active car, and he made it perfectly clear there's no chance he was going to do any, and he didn't, even to the extent of one test we needed to do to check something out at Silverstone. He was living in the Isle of Man. Nelson was in Brazil and he wouldn't still wouldn't drive in. It was only a little test. Nelson ended up flying back from Brazil to do the test at Silverstone. And I probably, being capable of grumpiness, <laughs> may, that may have... And he, not. <laughs> he certainly, He certainly latterly had decided that I was trying to do him down, which I can assure him, if he's watching, he probably won't, but I could assure him I wasn't. But it was a, it was, it was a difficult time because I like to think I'm a fair-minded person who gave equal effort to the whole thing. I mean, for me, I didn't care, as I said before, the Williams attitude was we don't care who wins as long as the other one's second. And that was my, that was always my approach. And if... You know, I really don't understand why that happened, but it certainly did happen. You're right. He did think that I was favouring Nelson, and he, you know, he 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 would, for example, assume if he wasn't as quick as Nelson that I had deliberately told them to put the wrong active program or settings into his car once he had accepted the active was worth having. And I'm thinking, well, why would he believe that? What would make him think that? I would do that. I mean, it, it was it was a particularly depressing time, to be honest. Well, I suppose as we're talking about the characteristics of racing drivers and winners, they have to find something to explain why they're not winning. That that's that is a very true. The the one of the things that I like to say is there's no such thing as a good car. There are good drivers, <laughs> bad cars. When the driver wins, he very, very rarely, and only the very greatest drivers say, oh, I won because I had the best car. Whereas when they're not quick, it's always, oh, my car was rubbish, or it's got no downforce, or I haven't got enough power. Um, so it's certainly the case that if a teammate is being beaten, 
he's not thinking that he's being beaten because he's not quite as good as his teammate ever. And I think that's psychologically inevitable because how could you be a great racing driver if you thought, well, actually, my teammate's better than me? You wouldn't be able to do it, would you? So I, I think it's very much in the nature of the psychology of the, the individual that you would look for that sort of an excuse. The Motorsport Shop is currently offering an exclusive 10% discount to podcast listeners on some Frank Durney-related products. Available until the end of July, a unique opportunity to own a very special Benetton B194. Now, not only is this signed, but Schumacher signed it in a way he used only for his friends, with just Michael and a love heart. It's a great piece of history, so just head over to the shop and add Pod 10 at the checkout to claim your discount. Interestingly, talking about um, psychology and drivers, one of your, I'm thinking, sort of your favourite drivers, Carlos Reutemann, was this sort of slightly sort of, I'm not going to, odd character is the wrong phrase, but, you know, on the one side, he was this wonderful, wonderful talent behind the steering wheel, but his mind did, you know, he did sort of, especially when he sort of threw away the championship, really, um, there was this other side to him. And it must be, must be quite a frustrating thing as an engineer, because you had a passenger ride with him once in the wet, which sort of blew your mind. But then to see something like that championship well, it's, it's, it was so sad because, you know, he should have been world champion that year. You know, he's, it's such a shame he wasn't, in my, for me. To say that it was frustrating, at the races, you see, again, I was running Jones and Neil. And in fact, for the last race, Patrick came over to help Carlos. I had to keep reminding him that he was supposed to be helping Carlos because his natural reaction was to be to talk to Alan. But um, we could tease him about that. But he, he, uh, he, he, might, he might not remember it the way I did. But anyway, he, he, it was much less of a frustration for me because my car was in the lead and it won and da-da-da. And, and seeing Carlos dropping back, you, you're so focused during the race on your own task. And if you're running a car you can't be concentrating too hard on the other one that's the team manager's job um so it what it was i thought it, afterwards it was horrendous that he hadn't won the championship because i thought he deserved it but in the end on the day i was concentrating on jones worrying about whether his head was going to fall off because he's he was hanging out the cockpit <laughs> different days naked. Yeah. Before we go on to sort of talk more about the engineering side, um, I did want to talk briefly about Williams and obviously Frank's accident, um, because it really, you know, he was, along with, you know, Patrick, in the early days, he was the driving force, if it wasn't for Frank, running things out of a telephone box and, you know, by the sort of skin of his teeth, Williams wouldn't have been there. What was it like at Williams over that sort of, you know, the before and after? Well, I think um, Frank was very good at blagging the money. Once he'd taken, once he'd accepted that the engineering side was pretty well in hand now, which I don't think it ever had been at Williams before in the history of Williams, he'd always not been satisfied that the engineering side was working properly. He basically didn't bother too much about the running of the company. I mean, day-to-day running of the company, Patrick did it, not Frank. Pretty well everything that happened with, at Williams, apart from the marketing side and the raising money, Patrick did. You know, I went off and did the aero and most of the testing, but Patrick was Williams Grand Prix engineering, really. He was the, the day-to-day guy who took all the decisions because Frank often wasn't there. You know, he'd be off 
getting money from the he'd be in Saudi Arabia waiting to get an audience with the prince or something he might have to be there for days before they deign to see him and all this sort of stuff so when he had his accident it was a massive shock to the system and if at that stage he hadn't got some good sponsored contracts already signed we'd have been screwed because I don't think the rest of us, with all due respect to the other clever guys in marketing, of whom there weren't many, <laughs> there was Peter Windsor and Sheridan Thin, really, but I don't think they could have blagged the money as effectively as Frank did. But having the budget in place for however many years it was, we basically continued as we always did. The big change was that Patrick then had to be team principal which meant he then had to go to all the races, which hitherto we'd split fi pretty well 50-50. And because he might well be in a team principals meeting, I ended up having to go to all the races as well, so that the engineering side would definitely be covered. Uh, as a result of that, we had decided before the season started that we st needed race engineers, which we'd never had before. So I was given the job of training race engineers because I did most of the testing and what have you. So I, I trained David Brown during 1986, who became Nigel's race engineer the following year. And in 1987, I trained a guy called James Robinson, who subsequently was Senna's race engineer at McLaren and so forth. So they were my apprentices back then. And, but before that, so that, that was probably for me the biggest change, the fact that we went to having race engineers. And of course Frank came back and the money was kept coming and all the rest of the stuff. So it wasn't as big a, a, a it wasn't as big a shock to the Williams system as had been expected, I think. Yeah. Was there was there any link between Honda going to leaving Williams and Frank's accident or was that just Well, people say so, but I have no way of knowing whether it's true. I mean, I've been told that the, the, that it's it's a strange thing in Japan. They don't deal with disabled people, but that seems odd. But I mean, culturally, Japan is very, very different, as as I learned. And so maybe um, I really don't know. Yeah. Now we've got a lot of sort of engineering stuff to talk about. Uh, you you mentioned you know your hero being Jim Clark. Was there anyone on the sort of engineering side because you um. You initially started by making record players, didn't you? you well, no, no, I mean, no, to, to be, to, uh, a quick summary is I was interested in, I was going to be either a vet or an engineer because I wanted to design racing cars. I chose the engineering, ended up going to Imperial College because Keith Duckworth had been there. Met Harvey Postlethwaite and Keith Duckworth while I was there through the Motor Club. I'd written a computer program to optimise suspension geometry and... It turned out that, you know, the naivety of youth, you don't think about these things when you're 19, 20, do you? But nobody in the world had ever done that before, so that was my foot in the door. But there were no full-time jobs back then. I mean, people say it's difficult to get into now when there are thousands of people working in Formula One. Back then, there were probably only 10 graduate engineers working in Formula One on the planet. So it wasn't easy to get a job. So. I was doing stuff for Harvey, firstly the suspension geometry, and then I started doing a bit of analysis of the aero for him. And in the meantime, I had done my apprenticeship with a company called David Browns, and I was working in noise and vibration research there. But they, because I was one of the boys, and it's a lovely family business, the R&D boss said that if I wanted, I could run my computer program over the weekend. If I put my card deck, as it was cards back then, on the back, of the weekend's run, if it ran, 
that was fine because the computer would have been idling otherwise and if it didn't I'd have to wait till next weekend so that was generous of them so I was continuing to do it but being in Huddersfield which is where they were and having to go to Reading or Toaster to see people was a pain in the neck so I started looking for a job nearer to where the motor racing was and I'm a hi-fi fan and a noise and vibration research job cropped up at Garrard so I took it so I moved closer so when you were very much at the forefront of kind of data and you know computers and, and things like that in Formula One did you ever feel as though there were people who were not that keen on that side of it because up until that it must be quite an alien yeah, <coughs> yeah I idea. think I think there were quite a few I mean a lot of the older engineers had never used a computer and were somewhat you know, what on earth would you want one of those for? Certainly when I wanted to use computer-aided design, Patrick, oh, we don't need anything like that, and, was, uh, and in the discussions we had with Frank, Patrick was not prepared to agree to any of the budget to go towards computer-aided design. Well, we'll ask him about that this afternoon. Yeah, you can do. <laughs> uh, but he, he, he probably won't remember. But, and, and in fact... I also, being an older engineer, the one thing that I would still have were I still doing it, I would still have a drawing board with a full-size drawing on it because I can't get my head around the scale if it's just on a computer screen. And I think, you know, when I first started using CAD, I used to get to a certain point and then plot it and stick it on the board so I could have a look at it, a bit of a think. And I su suspect that most of the engineers who were... Even my age, because it was unusual for someone my age to be computer literate. You know, the, I did computing at Imperial College, and there were only 3,000 computers on Earth, and there were almost no people doing the course, getting a, 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 a what do you call it, a job authorization number to use one of the two computers at Imperial College was not easily done. So people of my age and older, more experienced, were unlikely to have ever sat at a computer at all and therefore weren't familiar with what they could or couldn't do. Did you, at, at that in those early days at that time, did you, did you have the vision, did you know how important computing and data were going to be and how crucial they would be in two decades' time? No. Or was it a nice no, I mean, for me, I'm an engineer and I wanted to understand how things work. That's what drove me to be an engineer. And using electronic transducers and data loggers to measure what's actually happening so I can deduce what's, how they work, for me, was a reason to learn about electronics and data logging and computers and stuff. So they were a, a really good tool. Uh, a computer's a fast idiot. It basically does exactly what you tell it to do very quickly. So it doesn't do anything that you haven't asked it to do. You know, the idea that a computer can make an error is false. The idea that the computer's clever is false. It's only as clever as the programmer. The computer can't do anything that you haven't precisely explained to it how to do. So I taught, thought of the computer as a brilliant tool. And of course, in the early days, and the first computer I actually bought to use at home, which was a Macintosh, not a PC, because I, I, I didn't like the MS, the Microsoft software, um, cost me seven and a half grand for a computer and printer. And the two extra megabytes of RAM that I bought for it cost £1,000 each. 
And wow. you now look at that, mind you, if I'd have put seven and a half grand in and bought Apple shares with it, it would be worth many millions now. So <laughs> that would have been a better investment rather than taking it to the taking it and putting it in a skip later. But um, it just goes to show that uh, the hard drive in it, which was a very expensive hard drive, is actually not big enough to store a single sheet of A4 paper with nothing written on it in the current Word format. So that's how things have changed. They've got very fat and because they can. But no, I had no idea. I mean, for me, it was obviously going to allow me to do a bit more. But the early days of surfacing... I would do a surface on a bit of bodywork over the engine because I was trying to make it as tight as I could because we got good gains from that. And sometimes it would crash. <laughs> sometimes it would just churn away and I'd bonder down to the... and make two cups of tea, one for me and one for Patrick, <laughs> so that we could, you know, just pass the time. That's probably when I started drinking too much tea. Um, and the idea that you could now take a complex 3D surface and manipulate it with some sort of a mouse, I mean, ne my wildest dreams never thought that would happen. The, <coughs> I, I want to sort of, we'll come on to the active suspension in a, bit, in a bit, but was there a particular time or place that your ideas came from? Or were you, do you look back and think of yourself as a problem solver? Well, I am a problem solver. That, that I'm a, a troubleshooting is what I seem to be best at, actually. If I'm, I'm quite good at looking at what the symptoms are and then working out what it must therefore be. But I suppose that's where the ideas come from. Because one of the things, the flat bottom was a terrible deviation of motor racing. Because going from a shaped to a flat bottom made the cars from nice and predictable to hideously unstable and what we had to do to try and make them work was just horrendous and when you looked at the what happened to the car as it moved it was so bad that active suspension that could control the aero platform became almost a no-brainer so whilst I know that Lotus came to active suspension from trying to minimize wheel hop you know getting really good suspension dynamics I couldn't give a damn about really good suspension dynamics. For me, it entirely came because I was seeing such hideous figures in the in the uh, wind tunnel at certain right heights. So, yeah, it was the idea of saying that I would like to have active suspension on our car came from the fact that I was seeing some hideous aero problems. Yeah. And, the, and the active suspension was based on a system that was on an ambulance. Yeah, was well, a, a, a AP. Um, had made a all-mechanical hydraulic system to, to keep an ambulance stable. And I think I said to Patrick, I thought active suspension would be a good idea, and he basically said, well, we don't have the resource to do it, so we're not doing it. And then this guy had come along to see Patrick and said, well, I've got this system, and it's, we think it's probably quite good, but no one's, it's never gone into production. And Patrick saw, I think partly because it, it wasn't electronic, uh, used a little spring damper mass system as the frequency splitter between correction and bump in as much as you've got to have something in an active suspension system that decides whether it's a hill and it's got to go up it or whether it's a bump and it's got to ride over it. And they had a mechanical system for doing this. So we, the first thing I did was sat down, looked at it and thought, well, it's the wrong way round. What they have made the front's got to be the back for a Formula 1 car, I mean. 
I won't go into the details of why, but that was clear. So we did that. We built a prototype that was all mechanical, but making a little spring mass damper system for all, well, there were three. It's a three-wheel, a three-legged stool idea, the way it works. Uh, So they were all the same. We failed dismally on. I remember the first time Nelson drove it, he came in and said, oh, he said, it's beautiful. He said, it rides like a Cadillac. He said, the problem is, handles like a Cadillac as well. So we, we canned that and made an electronic version uh, where effectively the little filters that decided whether it was hill or bump were electronic and you could mess with them. So, And that's and what ended up being developed sufficiently to win its first race, yeah. much to my joy. And uh, it was Paddy Lowe who wrote the software for it, is that? No. no. Um, I wrote the specification of the software and what we wanted to do and we used a guy called Kurt Borman, who had made the digital data logger we were using. It was like a one-man engineering band in the States who made digital data loggers. I'm sure we were the first people to stick a digital data logger on our car, and it was made by Kurt. And when we were going to do the active suspension, I spoke to Kurt and said, well, would you be able to make the electronic box for us? And he said, well, I have to have some different inputs, because rather than it just being recording, he's got to send some signals out to control Moog valves, etc. So anyway, Kurt and I sat down, and he produced a box for us, and I wrote the specification of the software that I wanted it to do, and Kurt wrote, Kurt coded it for his box. So this is how we worked for quite some time, and then it started looking quite promising. And I said to Patrick, look, we don't want a situation where our subcontractor realises we've got something and goes and shows it to our opposition, which is actually what happened to the skirt design. The guy who was making the skirts for us showed the drawing to Brabham, as a result of which they ended up with remarkably similar ones. And um, I thought that would be bad. So Patrick gave me permission to hire some people to bring it in-house, and I had Paddy Lowe to do the software and Steve Wise who's still at Williams, to do the hardware. So we brought it in-house. So Paddy wasn't there at the beginning, but he did pick up and develop the software. He's a very smart bloke, so he, he did do good stuff with it. From only £3 for three months, you can get unlimited access to all of Motorsport Magazine's content, both online and in print. To sign up, just go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash trial, T-R-I-A-L. It, it sounds like such a sort of creative ecosystem at Williams at, in, at that time, um, coming up with solutions and innovative ideas. Were you aware of that at the time, uh, and, and do you sort of did you miss it later on in your career when maybe things were less, uh, you, less it was less easy to make big differences? Mm, well, the, the rules. I definitely regret it. I enjoyed that period. Um, you know, six wheeler, all sorts of marvelous things that we could do, um, and. Yeah, I mean, it's the rules. You're working with the rules. And there's this myth that the rules determine how expensive motor racing is. What determines how expensive motor racing is is how much money you've got. You know, if you've got 100 quid, you buy a different pair of shoes than if you've got 250 quid, probably. It's the same with motor racing, where the money went up when the fag companies came in, it went up again when the big car companies came in. But... As a result of so many people being convinced that the cost of motor racing depends on the rules, they keep dicking with them, which actually just makes the cars more expensive. So if you go back to 1982, we knew that a six-wheeler would be better than a four-wheeler. We knew that active suspension would be better. We knew, you know, there are all those things we knew. The only reason we didn't do them is we didn't have the money. 
Subsequently, they've all been banned. So now there's plenty of money to do as complex an active suspension as you like. There's and and they, it, it all ends up getting paid on salaries now, so the people who are working in it get an awful lot better paid than we ever did. But the, you're not allowed to do any of the things that you've actually now got money to do, which you didn't. So the most important decision we were making back then were of all those things that we knew would make a difference, which one would make the most difference, so that we worked on that one, not one of the others. Do you, do you look back at the act of suspension and think and consider that sort of your greatest engineering solution or were there, were there others that are less famous? Oh, I don't know. Crikey. Um, it pr probably, um, in as much as it had legs, you know, the, the basic concept. And uh, I mean, it was running on the FW14 and pretty well unchanged, basically, with some small, you know, the basic concept of that system kept winning until it was banned basically yeah. so yeah i suppose it was i had i did there were other things like for example you know the strakes that everyone's got in their underbody i was the first person to put any of those on a car which of course nobody would have noticed at the time because nobody took pictures of diffusers back then <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing there are little aero tweaks that i've done that mean something to me but wouldn't mean anything to anyone else i guess yeah. but did get copied mm. there's a, a there's a question here um from robert moy uh quite an interesting one. I, th I think i know what you're going to say to this but <laughs> he says uh there has been a lot of noise about the lack of noise of the current hybrid f1 cars as a designer if you could design a car that would be 1.5 seconds quicker than all the opposition but be half as loud would you follow that route or not and i know you're a huge <laughs> fan of the match of v12 quite rightly but as an engineer, I have a suspicion yeah. I know where this is going to go. It's a no-brainer, to be honest. If you're one and a half <laughs> seconds quicker, you know, if you were two-tenths quicker at half the volume, you build it. <laughs> a second and a half, you could absorb noise and you build it. <laughs> so I think um, you were talking about, you know, obviously the spending in motor racing. I think we should talk about the future of Formula One, hmm. the 2021 regulations. Um, let's start by saying you've got a blank sheet of paper. Um, what is what is the Frank Durney future of Formula One? Oh, it's so difficult now, to be honest. I think <clears throat> if you look at the big car companies, they're not spending any money on IC engine development anymore, are they? They're all working on electrics and this. But I can't see an exciting electric racing car. Maybe I'm just an old bloke who's blind. So I think that exciting motor racing may have to go back to how it was before the big car companies came in and put all their wedge into very sophisticated IC engines, like, I don't know, a two and a half litre V8 that revs to 15,000 RPM in a car that weighs 470 kilos or something, and just make it an exciting spectacle again. Now, I can't see that ever happening. I, I would go back to an H-pattern gearbox I would go back to the throttle pedal directly linked to the throttle. I would go back to three pedals, no semi-automatic gearbox, because we're always hearing about we can't overtake now because of aero. But if you're as old as me, you remember that most of the overtaking that actually happened back in the day was because someone missed a gear, not because they had someone in their slipstream. 
you know, and because the car was difficult to drive, you know, they have fixed ignition engines where the first 3% of throttle gave you 90% of the power, you know, they were difficult to drive and driver error when in a dice was a very big part of where you were overtaken or not. Whereas nowadays you can quite easily program it. So 5% more throttle is 5% more torque. So, you know, my, my mum can change gear as fast as Ed and Senna if he's got a semi-automatic gearbox. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Most of the driver skill, not all of it, obviously, but most of the physical driver skill and a lot of the things that in a dice meant that one guy beat the other, they're gone. They're not even in the cars anymore. And I, again, I can't see that going back either. I suspect if you ask Gordon Murray that question, he'd give you the same answer as me because we've spoken about it and we're of the same opinion. That is a bit of the motor racing, which means we don't get the dices we used to have. And blaming it on aero is ridiculous, to be honest, because that aspect of it isn't aero at all. Um, I don't know. I don't like the current aero rules because I don't like that hideous sort of bunch of chrysanthemums poking out the side pocket they've all got a, and the front wing that costs more and takes longer to make than a 1968 <laughs> Grand Prix car. You know, I just don't like it. Um, and that is in, inherent in the way the re rules are. You know, if you allow people to do things like that and they've got a lot of money and you won't let them do anything important, they will come out with another wiggly little vein just behind the front tyre. You know, it's hideous. It's cost a fortune. It's made almost no difference, but it has made a difference. They have got the people. They have got the budget, so they've done it. And I, I really, really hate that. And you're probably working it out. But... Um, <laughs> On the fence. Yeah, <laughs> as usual. <laughs> yes, as usual. Uh, so I, I do think, if you look back at Peter Wright's original analysis that he did about the car parameters that had a big influence on overtaking, he found that tyre grip was another big influencing factor and less tyre grip was always good for overtaking. And again, you know, Jim Clark won two Grand Prix on the same set of tyres. You know, you can't think of that happening now, can you? Um and, and less grip is always better, whereas the drivers obviously prefer super grippy tyres, and they always say so. If you actually look at it, the best races have always been in the wet. And the one thing we can be sure about is they haven't got more grip in the wet. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, I, the hybrid engines, for the road, I think hybrid's a brilliant thing, a petrol-electric hybrid. Bought one myself. But I'm not sure that for racing in the long term, given the amount of uh, big car company investment that's required, that it's, that it's sustainable because I don't think they'll bother. I think in a few years' time, they'll be so... Maybe, I mean, for me still, a hybrid is a better solution than electric. And maybe that, maybe I'm right, and maybe that'll dawn on everyone. But at the moment, it looks like all the pressure for the big car companies to go entirely electric. And if that's the case, I can't see the development of these fabulous, incredibly efficient, but mind-numbingly heavy and expensive engines being the thing for Formula One. And uh, again, I think I probably know the answer, but did road relevancy ever play any kind of part in your no. thinking? when? no. No, f being faster is the thing that was the only thing. And, I mean, if fitting a radio or an air conditioning system made it faster, I would have probably looked into the best radio, and made, but it didn't, you know. And I, I remember thinking the last thing I absolutely know brought 
improvements to road cars were disc brakes in 1959. <laughs> Most of the rest of it, now carbon brakes are better, but you're not going to see those on every car, because I think they're something like six or seven grand extra on an expensive car. Hybrid, I'm sure that there are some things from the hybrid programming and optimization could end up on road cars, but that's not my expertise. But from the chassis side, I can't think of anything that I would do to make my racing car better that would also make my road car better. Nothing. I mean, I think, I think you know, Formula One may well have to make a choice at some point between going after yeah. the manufacturer money and therefore road relevancy or just becoming a, a pure entertainment sport. Yeah. The, um, looking at the 2021 regulations, the, the kind of, I guess the general premise of this, and please correct me if I get this wrong, is to try and take away some of the dirty air behind the car. You were mentioning earlier that actually this, the, the, the overtaking is not necessarily all down to... It's not only uh, that, obviously. Yeah, only I that. mean, the number of times we've reduced it is almost without number. We lost 80% of the aero efficiency when we went flat bottom. Yeah. So if that was the answer there would be far more overtaking in 1983 than there had been in 1982, which you'll find there wasn't. So, you know, it's, it's one of those... And I know that this isn't a common view, but I think it's almost like a sort of hobby horse that has no, almost no justification, in fact, because we've been banging on about aero being the problem since Adam was a boy, and we've done massive changes to the aero of the cars over the years, either just massive reduction in aerodynamics, loss of this that or the other you know the the 2009 rules were there to help overtaking but one of the solutions was outwash front wing which apparently makes it worse i've no idea whether it actually does because i haven't looked into it but you know if air fixing the error was the answer it would have been fixed years ago yeah interestingly that i i always think that 2008 cars look hideous next to the 2009 ones i quite agree i didn't like the the narrow wing with a with a sort of swoopy down in the middle and well uh, they were hideously difficult to design as well yeah i preferred the 2009 yeah do you think the cost cap will have much of an effect on 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 teams I don't really know. The thing is that it was inevitable. I mean, the cost cap should have included the driver and the, drive and the team principal, but of course the team principal didn't want to vote for that because he's not going to make 10 million a year if the cost cap's 30 million, is he? Um, <laughs> and the drivers weren't going to be keen on it because if the driver is actually taking three quarters of the budget and the wind tunnel has to be closed, it'll slowly dawn on him. In actual fact, he's maybe not quite as important as he thought he was. <laughs> so... Oh, but Frank, please come back to Formula <laughs> One. <laughs> but the fact is, the drivers aren't in the price cap, and nor's the team principal. I mean, it's a joke. It isn't a price cap. So, say, for example, I'm a driver and I'm on 50 million a year. I know there aren't many, but say I am. And I think, up to now, the race engineer's been on whatever he's on, working for the team. My trainer psychological analyst, the data engineer, I would just hire them all. Or I'd talk to the team and the team would say, well, look, we'll give you another 10 million a year. So your race engineer now works for you. And you can pay him a million quid a year, if you like. And your trainer, he would now work for you. And you put as many people as you possibly can who do work with the driver at the circuit. You know, the people on the simulation, calculation, they all work for the driver. So all of a sudden, that total overhead 
Now, I don't know whether they'll put somebody in price, place to avoid that, but it doesn't stop me laughing my head off when I find that there's a price cap and it doesn't include the team principals or the drivers. It's ridiculous. Interesting that you've, uh, you've managed to find a loophole in the regulations already. But, uh. <laughs> well, to be honest, that was the obvious loophole while they were being discussed. <laughs> now, before we go on to the next question, I should remind you that we have a motorsport shop that is absolutely packed to the rafters with signed memorabilia, posters, books, models, and everything you could ever want from the world of motoring or motorsport. Have a look at motorsportmagazine.com forward slash shop. What's more, as a podcast listener, you get a 10% discount on everything in the shop. This is valid until the end of July, and please use the code POD10. That's POD10. Um, <laughs> we're running out of time, sadly, but I want, just before we finish, I wanted to um, play a, a quick game of sort of word association. So I'm going to throw some names <laughs> at oh you. Oh, dear. Um, and do just say what comes into your head. Um, I think this should be excellent. Uh, in light of who we're s- sitting down with this afternoon, I'm going to start with Patrick Head. Genius. Frank Williams. Hardworking. Alain Prost. Brilliant. Juan Pablo Montoya. Oh, what a character. I must, I, I do, actually, I'm going to just quickly dive in here. He was an amazing talent, wasn't he? Yeah. And I, I do think he's underappreciated in the results. Oh, I, I completely do. He, um, he and Nigel Mansell are the two most similar drivers I've worked with in terms of nothing was going to stop him going for a gap. You know, his massive talent. He was just incredibly talented. But he, he and his character didn't really... And, uh, he, he didn't appreciate the way Formula One was because he he won everything in Indy cars already and he got used to that rather laid-back way of operating and all the rest and he just didn't like being corralled and controlled in the way that Formula One teams expect. I think it was a shame that he left Williams um, because McLaren was never going to be suitable for him and Williams could have been but well, he did and it it's all over and it's a shame because I'm a massive fan of the man yeah. uh, and then the final one Nigel Mansell difficult <laughs> I, there's actually there's one question in here um, if I can uh, if I can find it um, you were talking about Williams then uh, yes this is from David as well there's another part of his question what are your just to finish on this what are your feelings on the steady decline of Williams since the early 2000s oh, it's massively depressing I hate it I mean, I just don't like it. It just seems completely wrong. I still pop in to see Frank because he's my mate. And I used to wander into the, you know, drawing office and talk to people who I knew. And I still do sometimes and off often. And if I go down in the workshop, all I get is, when are you coming back? (laughs) Shouted across the workshop floor, which is incredibly heartwarming and all the rest of the stuff. But I'm sure I couldn't do anything for them, you know. I have said to people, I'm nearly 70 now. When I was working on the 07, I was 29. It's not for people like me to be coming up with the new ideas. Well, you came up with lots of them. Yeah, uh, it was massive fun. I'm so privileged to have been paid a salary to do my hobby for my entire career. Mm. Can't beat it. Well, thank you very much for coming in. It's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Alan, for recording it all. Uh, We'll be back with more of these podcasts in this series, Engineering 
Formula One's drivers. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.